Hello and welcome to the Mission Inspire podcast, a production of the National Medal of Honor Museum Foundation. My name is Mo Barrett, a leadership speaker and retired Air Force Colonel. Just a few weeks ago, a new hero joined the ranks of America's Medal of Honor recipients. On September 5th, President Biden awarded our nation's highest award for valor in combat to retired U.S. Army Captain Larry Taylor for his actions in Vietnam, where he risked his life to rescue four soldiers with a daring helicopter maneuver. To talk about Captain Taylor's inspiring story, I'm delighted to welcome Josh Schick and Kaylee Martin Schick to the Mission Inspire podcast. They are historians and new additions to the National Medal of Honor Museum's content team coming to the museum from the World War II Museum in New Orleans. So Josh and Kaylee, we are thrilled to have you join us today. Uh, we're going to jump right in. Can you talk a little bit about the actions that earned Captain Taylor the Medal of Honor? Yeah, I think I can kind of lead up with that. I, I, if, with these recipients, it's always about context. So why was he even in that position? And um, Larry, Larry Taylor is a Cobra gunship pilot. And so at the time, we're looking at Air Mobile, and particularly he is an Air Cav unit, and they're attached to the 1st Infantry Division south-southwest of Saigon. They're basically in the Iron Triangle doing a lot of, uh, a lot of pacification missions down there. As the United States develops these air mobile tactics, they realize that they're sending in troop ships, troop helicopters that are able to instantly drop military units right where we want them so they can concentrate in force. They realize the catch, though, is that as these slicks, as they're called, are coming in, they're unarmed. And so they begin to create gunships and this specializes and eventually the Cobra comes online. Now, the development of the Cobra is almost in parallel with the development of Larry Taylor. He's in school, becomes a helicopter pilot, and he deploys and is one of the first units to take the Cobra into action. And so what he's doing in this area is doing gunship runs, supporting ground troops. Now, in the case of this action, there was a long range reconnaissance patrol that was out searching for Vietnamese, just kind of touching and feeling everything to see what was going on. And as often happens with small teams, they like to go unnoticed, but sometimes you're found and they call for help. Not uncommon in Vietnam for small units to get surrounded. They put out a radio call and anyone with a gun or a bomb on a fixed wing or rotary wing aircraft is going to come to their rescue. And in this case, it is Larry Taylor and another Cobra helicopter they begin supporting them with gun runs, watching out for them, you know, using their spotlights to sort of check the areas that they're in, check their evac routes. And they pretty quickly realize that these guys are in over their heads. There's no other rescue elements that are able to get to the area soon enough. Larry's starting to run low on ammunition. He's starting to run low on fuel. And these four guys on the ground are starting to run low on time. And so Larry decides to step in and go beyond what he's supposed to do, which is just provide support until a rescue element can come. And he said, nope, we got to get these guys out. So Larry Taylor comes up with a plan after checking their evac area, realizing it's too hot because he goes and takes fire from it. So we can't go over here. So he finds another area, spots light it, coordinates it with the guys on the ground and the other gunship. He asks the other gunship to cover one of the flanks. He covers a second flank and lands. Now, the key part of this is that this is an attack helicopter. It's kind of like a motorcycle with rotors and guns. There's no room for anything else on it. There are just the guns themselves and the skids, which a helicopter uses to land. 
it's not a school bus. It's not meant to be picking people up, but he puts his helicopter in this position and these guys actually physically climb on. At one point, he's apparently telling them as he's coming in what to hold on to. He's like, grab the rocket pod. You grab the skid. You guys just kind of pile on and we'll get you out of here. And so he manages to get them out. Um, it's also important to keep in fact that this was actually a twilight and nighttime mission. So we're looking at low visibility, looking at completely outnumbered. We're looking at not necessarily the right tools for a pickup job, but Larry Taylor does what it takes to make it work. Well, that's amazing. We talk about this, the adaptability of things and, and, you know, all these things that are not made for what they ended up using it for. And, and of course, that's what part of the Medal of Honor is all about and recognizing. And of course, for those of us who are uh, not smart on history, right, I, we're talking to historians and curators here, but this happened 55 years ago, more than 55 years ago. So what is the process for awarding someone um, any kind of decoration for something that happened back in 1968. What is that process like that takes over 55 years? So there is a statute of limitations on when the Medal of Honor should be awarded. Um, it has to be um, within five years, it needs to be around the neck of the recipient, five years from the date of action. So for any of these that are decades later, it literally takes an act of Congress and Congress saying, we'll override the statute of limitations. This is deserving if the branch of the military has said it's deserving. So this process actually started back in for Larry Taylor back in the late 90s. There was a reunion and one of the men he saved that night, uh, David Hill, is talking with some other guys. He's like, wait, Taylor didn't get the Medal of Honor for that? Like, that was insane, you know? So Hill starts to drive this effort that says, this guy needs to be recognized. He got, Taylor was awarded the Silver Star for this. But these guys said, this is Medal of Honor worthy. You know, this is he a really, a, again, like we've said, above and beyond. And so they they began appealing to the army and putting in requests. And it just keeps getting rebuffed. No, no, no. And it's not until I think about 2017 that they get the assistance from retired General B.B. Um, Bell. And Bell had been on many of these award committees. And he's like, look, I can help you. Because what they've been told is there's no new evidence. So in order for an award to be upgraded, there has to be new evidence. There has to be, um, in many cases, recognition that this person was denied due to race, um, religion, etc. In this case, that that wasn't the situation. So they uh, realize that when the original Silver Star was awarded, nobody interviewed the guys that Taylor saved. Nobody interviewed his co-pilot. So they submitted Hill's testimony, but they said, no, you have to have at least two eyewitnesses, which is standard for any Medal of Honor. And so they start this project to track down his co-pilot that night, uh, Chief Warrant Officer James Ratliff, and he has kind of disappeared into the world. They, they have addresses for him and they, you know, they're not sure where he is. And they finally track him down and he's willing to give his testimony. So with two eyewitness accounts, two eyewitness testimonies, the army says, okay, it's approved. And so it took, <laughs> it took quite a lot of time, but once they submitted that request with the two eyewitness accounts, it was very quickly pushed through. That's amazing. So 
So Josh, you talked about adaptability and then Kaylee, you're talking about just the the perseverance and the persistence and the follow through. I mean, that's, that is a long 55 year struggle. And so it, of course, that's a great thing that it ends that way. And so those are kind of two attributes of how Taylor got the the medal, but how is the museum, how's the National Medal of Honor Museum going to tell a story, including those two parts of it, but what's, what does his story look like for the museum? You know, this is something that comes up with a lot for us. Uh, usually a museum is talking about things that are done. You know, we're talking, we're looking back in the past and, and we're explaining it to you or bringing that content to you. The One of the most unique things about our museum is that the metal continues to breathe and live. Um, there, you know, you will hear it from recipients. Hopefully there won't be more recipients in the future because that means conflict continues. But for the time being, it's constantly being thought about and reassessed. There are recipients that are still alive. There are stories that still need to be told. And another thing that comes up very often is, is how many heroic acts did we never hear about? Or how many heroic acts were caught up in bureaucracy because they hadn't found the right number of boxes to check to move the process forward? So in Larry Taylor's case, that's sort of that theme of we're going to have some space dedicated to the continuing things. You know, we don't know who may get a reviewed reward soon or who may receive one soon. And so I think Kaylee can kind of talk better about how we're going to address that, mainly in our timeline area. Yeah, so we'll have a timeline covering the history of the Medal of Honor. You know, how has it developed? How has it changed? And one of the things that we've looked at there, and you know, these are things we're still still mulling over, is having a space where we can show these uh, ceremonies. And what's the latest ceremony? Who's our latest recipient? So it's, it's going to have to be something probably digital media that's living and we're able to change because there are, I think, three to four uh, instances right now where um, medals are under review for potential upgrade. So should that happen, we'll want to show that. And I think that that's hopefully right now, hopefully the the medals that continue to be awarded are going to be some of these retroactive ones, as we call them. Um, there are other reviews to review instances of denial due to individual, you know, race, religion, or other circumstances. Sometimes they're held back because the action was somewhere we weren't supposed to be. And so it didn't happen at the time. So we'll tell a lot of those stories throughout the museum. But yeah, we're definitely looking at having a place where we can show, hey, this is the latest one. This is who it is. And maybe put some context around why did they wait 55 years, 65 years? Uh, in some cases with some of these, it's you know World War II veterans receiving it 40, 50 years later. And even later, they're still reviewing some. So yeah, it's it's important to us to show that the story of the Medal of Honor isn't complete. There's That's also a, great, yeah. a really fascinating. Uh, there's also a really fascinating connection, and it's another one of the ways we try and look at telling stories and connecting people. Is is the Medal of Honor community? And Kaylee's actually noticed a very interesting pattern about Larry Taylor's medal, as far as who may have seen early versions of it or could have been a reason that an initial citation didn't go through. Yeah. So um, as I've been reading up more on, on Taylor and then this week I was doing some other stuff reading about Audie Murphy. Well, Audie Murphy was put in for the medal of honor by Keith Ware, who was his battalion commander. And Keith Ware himself was a medal of honor recipient from world war two. 
And Keith Ware is the commanding officer of the 1st Infantry Division in Vietnam. So it's kind of this interesting, like six degrees of separation sometimes with these, these recipients. And so one thing I read that was speculation about potential reason Taylor didn't get the Medal of Honor at the time is that his action is in June of uh, 68. Ware's actually killed in a helicopter crash in Vietnam in September of that year. So it kind of, it would have thrown that that division into a little bit of a disarray and those things that would have gone up to that divisional level, probably things fall through the cracks, that type of thing happens. But it's just interesting to see, you know, what Audie Murphy and Larry Taylor have in common, Keith Ware. <laughs> so is that the new game now instead of six degrees of seven, <laughs> uh, Kevin Bacon, it's six degrees of Audie Murphy or you know, <laughs> Ware? I think we could do that, actually. Hey, I was just at Audie Murphy's grave and uh, I was given a tour in Arlington National Cemetery. I always take people past uh, Audie Murphy. So that's an interesting, you're, you're like historian, curator and, and detective. I love that. <laughs> well, and I like that you guys are talking about the museum's focus is both forward looking and, you know, backward looking because and kind of bridging that gap, because I think that helps make. Uh, the metal and history and all of our conflicts and all of our service members a little bit more tangible because we may read about something 55 years ago, but to be able to say, hey, this is happening today because of actions that happened 55 years ago. And I, you you mentioned it, Josh, a little bit too, about so few recipients being alive still. So I would think as a historian, having the opportunity to talk to them firsthand would be like just such a great opportunity. So have you met Taylor yet or no? We haven't had the opportunity, no. All right. So when you have the opportunity to speak with Captain Taylor, uh, what are you going to ask him? You know, one thing I'm curious about that we've been discussing and talking about his action is he really, we talk about the the values of the Medal of Honor. and, And he really exemplifies sacrifice to me because he didn't have to do this. It wasn't his job. He could have lost his life. He could have lost the life of his co-pilot. He could have lost his aircraft. Many things could have gone wrong for him, but he didn't care. All he cared about is he could not leave those four men on the ground. He could not leave them surrounded in the dark, knowing they're they're not coming back home. And so I think it would be interesting to ask him, with all the decisions he's having to make at that time, was it running through his mind that if this goes sideways could lose my career i could get you know i mean the the consequences because according to his account he he radioed back and he said i'm going in to get these guys and they said negative you are not and he said no i am and and so there could have been a lot of consequences had something bad happened had this not worked out and that's something that really struck me i'd love to know you know what his thinking was and his reasoning did he even think about that or was he so focused on his guys that it didn't matter to him and it never even crossed his mind because that's that level of the commitment to the job and sacrifice that, you know what, if I get court-martialed for this, at least I tried. And I'd love to know kind of what he was thinking when he was making those decisions. That's awesome. Because by the time he performs his action, he he's essentially becoming a short-timer on his tour. He's been there since August of 67. He's gone through Tet. You know, he... he completes i mean like 2000 flying hours or 2000 missions you know he's forced down at least five times by the time he arrives above that crew and decides to rescue them he's no fool he knows exactly what he's getting into he knows the consequences and he also knows that in two months he's 
going to be heading home. And that's a lot to sacrifice. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I hope you guys get the chance to talk to him and ask him those questions. And I'm sure many other questions. Um, and yeah, getting 2000 hours in a helicopter is a painful way to get 2000 hours because we all know that helicopters just beat the air into submission. They don't actually fly it's, or the ground is repelling them depends on who you ask. But um, yeah, that's fascinating. So aside from adaptability and perseverance and and resilience and um, and just that commitment, not only to the mission, but commitment to doing what's right and commitment to your teammates uh, and doing the army version of negative ghost rider, the pattern is full and disobeying orders. What do you want Americans or anybody who comes through the museum, what do you want them to learn from Captain Taylor's stories and all the other fellow recipients that are going to be highlighted in the museum? Something that struck me, I just recently heard a, a, quote, a young person said, it's important to learn that things aren't all just it's important to learn and understand that other people matter and not just your friends and not just the people, you know, and doing the right things for other people. And I think that Taylor is a great example of that he didn't know those guys on the ground. He never met them before, but they mattered and he did something for someone else. And I think it's important for people to take away from these recipients that other people matter. And what we do matters. And one of the things about Taylor that's been striking to think about is there were four families changed that night. Four families whose sons, brothers, fathers, uncle, cousin came home. Four men who got to go home and have a life and have families. And so to think about how your actions have this ripple effect, and you may never know it, but that doesn't matter. And that's something that I think this kind of the duty, you know, to others above yourself. And, and that's to me, what kind of makes the world a better place. And so we hope that that's one of the things that will inspire people is these guys went above and beyond, not for medals, not for accolades, but they'll tell you, I did this because I loved that man next to me and I didn't want to see him get hurt. And I think having more of a sense of not just self-preservation, but preserve us let's preserve people let's help one another and i it's one of the things that i think our stories in the museum are really going to help people yeah get a better sense of i love that josh how about you you know i'm looking at all this stuff it, it becomes about moments and action to me so you know everyone is faced with moments in their lives uh medal of honor recipients happen to have pretty pretty extreme moments um but the focus is really on the actions and not the the physical running around and the flying in the helicopter but the actions the decisions in those moments what do those people do that's really what to focus on because every single person will be faced with a moment in their life might not be on a battlefield like this it certainly won't hopefully but it all determines what your actions are and your actions define who you are and so these moments are a good way to really show people that your actions matter. They affect everyone. And you really need to think about what you're going to do and how you're going to do it, or at least be able to assess like, yeah, that was a good idea or that was a bad idea. Or, you know, I need to grow in these areas. And so really that's, that's it for me. I love that. And I love just, you know, so Kaylee, Kaylee and Josh, both of you, there's usually at one point in the podcast when my eyes well up and the, you know, the black mold and the allergies start. And so Kaylee, when you talked about um, reminding people that 
it's not just inward looking. It's not just me, 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 a me centric world and that other people matter. And then Josh tying in the fact that what we do, and a lot of times we forget that inaction is an action, right? So to not do something is also a decision. So I love that you're going to be able to use that to highlight, you know, what can we do for others and what can we do? It doesn't mean it doesn't, you know, even if we don't know that person, what can we do for others? And it's not about that self-preservation, but the preservation of us. So I love that. So obviously you guys are very passionate about this and you have uh, your great, both of you, great storytellers. Uh, do you have military experience in your family? Um, my grandfather was in World War II. Uh, oh, wow. It was a drafty and got into Europe with the, as an infantryman just before the, just as the Battle of the Bulge was happening. Mm-hmm. And so as a 19-year-old, he was thrown into some of what the coldest winter on record and uh, like in, uh, I think of the 20th century fighting young kid from North Louisiana just tossed into this. Uh, and that's, he passed when I was a, a toddler and so kind of learning about his story and wanting to learn more is kind of what's gotten me into this because especially around his same age thinking, could I do that? And I think that's mm. something that really resonates then with the Medal of Honor story is these they're just they're just guys from somewhere you know they're not captain america and it shows we can all have moments of greatness and um so that's that's kind of what's inspired me but he's i have a some you know peripheral family members that serve but my grandfather's the closest connection i have i love that josh what calls you to this storytelling purpose of all these uh these heroes Um, you know i've got kind of periphery family members a couple cousins in the service and then yeah my both of my grandfathers, Air Force and Navy, and then had a great grandfather um, in the ambulance corps in the First World War. So that always kind of got me going, you know, as a kid, interested in their stories, interested in the context around it. And then uh, a book called 30 Seconds Over Tokyo I got from my grandfather's house. My grandfather served in the U.S. Navy, and that was kind of the first history book I ever read. It was an account of the Doolittle Raid written by one of the raiders. And it was the first printing of it and just been kind of stuck with it ever since. Wow. That's awesome. So what brings you then to the National Medal of Honor Museum? I know you were doing some work in, in uh, Louisiana as well. And uh, I know we're we're building this from the ground up. So is that what uh, what motivated you to, to come to us and give us all your talents and your wisdom? Yeah, it was, you know, we really believed in the mission. We love, love the direction and everything. And it was something that we felt could, or well, at least I felt that could really kind of lend our skills and our passions with we'd been working in museum field for quite a while now so it was a really wonderful opportunity to open a museum with such a great mission and and such a unique one as well yeah i agree i mean to be able to be in kind of the beginning and help shape it and use the things that you've learned to help tell these stories because you know working with world war ii history medal of honor stories there's so many fantastic ones there so to be able to expand that and put that all in context and um i, I really love to just looking at what what does it mean not just the military history but what does it mean and getting to help you know inspire america through these stories that hopefully will change lives telling these stories it's, it's exciting and it's a really unique opportunity I love that. Well, and you guys have already changed my perspective of uh, uh, you are not the typical historians. I mean, it's not what I picture. Neither one of you is, a, is what I picture when I think about a historian. It's on par with a librarian. I'm not locking libra- librarians, but you guys have such a, uh, you, you are young, you have this youthful energy. And so you've already changed my perspective what of a what a historian looks like and what a historian does. So 
explain for the rest of us, how, how do you explain, you know, maybe at my level, the sixth grade level. So how do you explain what a historian does at a museum um, like the Medal of Honor Museum or from the World War II Museum that you came from in New Orleans? Well, I keep my tweed jacket with elbow patches. I knew it. I <laughs> knew it. This is a podcast. You can't tell I'm wearing it, but <laughs> it's good. Subtle shades of green with nice dark brown leather. <laughs> uh, you know, I think being a historian in a museum is different than being a historian at a university. Um, and if you're an, if you're a university historian and you're doing academics and you're you're trying to tell the history kind of more for the record. We are in a museum trying to bring these stories to life. And you you want to find ways to tell the stories that people can connect to. So the first, first and foremost, you have to find a way to make it fun. You have to make it engaging and entertaining. And, um, and that's one of the things I love is speaking to a group. You know, if you're talking to kids, how do you talk to kids about a subject? If you're talking to adults, you talk to them differently. So that's one of the things we have to do is kind of be able to reach all levels, all interest levels, try and find things that'll pique different interests. And, and it's a lot of fun. Um, one of the things we'll be doing is you know, working on the exhibit text and the media and doing webinars and talking about these stories. And it's really, you know, bringing these people to life. And so, especially for us with the Medal of Honor Museum, we kind of say, you know, we're a bit of a biography museum. We are going to tell these stories. We're going to look at, you know, who was Audie Murphy as a little boy? What did he go through? And so in some ways, you know, you say detective, we do have to kind of dig into their stories and try to understand who these people were because that's what we can connect to. Um, so it's 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 a lot of fun. It's, it's a very different way of doing history, but it, it's um, really enjoyable, especially when you see people have that aha moment and connect with something and then their interest just grows from there right when they when that moment when they get it so yeah i love that i love well the difference too but the, between the tweed jacket wearers and the uh, people in the museums who are bringing that to life i love that so and kaylee you wrote a book um you co-wrote a book about the national world war ii museum in new orleans mm -hmm. so how does that work uh inform your work here at the national medal of honor museum and so can you tell us a little bit about your book too yeah so it's actually uh coming out soon um, the World War II Museum is completing their campus, and it was something we wanted to have this beautiful illustrated book to tell the history of building the World War II Museum because it's taken 23 years. <laughs> but it was, it's been so helpful for what we're doing now. So understanding the things that the World War II Museum went through and the challenges, and um, also helping us to look towards the future because oftentimes when you're building something you're looking towards that end date, that completion, that grand opening, which is so important and exciting, but also all the research into that of thinking about, hey, you know, once we're open, these are things we're gonna need to think about. So it's been, um, it was really fun. I, I worked on that with my my then boss, Dr. Nick Mueller, who was the founding president and CEO of the museum. And it's just an incredible opportunity to really dig into it and, and to work on something with him. So it was, been really exciting. I finally got a copy in. It's exciting to see it all come together. Congratulations. Yes. Yeah, nice Thanks. to have that that tangible uh that tangible proof of all the work that you put into that. Uh, blood, sweat, and beers or tears. I don't know what you do, <laughs> but uh, I love that. So well, Josh and Kaylee, I, I want to thank you for joining us. And uh, I know you're very busy uh, and we are thrilled that you had some time to share your insights and your background and your perspectives. Do you have any parting shots you want to share with anybody? Any bumper <laughs> stickers of wisdom that we've got? Because you've got some great storytelling skills. Uh, thank you. 
Yeah. Any, yeah, any, any party shots? More to come. Awesome. We're, we're going to continue telling the story. Every single story is unique. Um, yep. And we, I guess we'll just, more to come. <laughs> and maybe we do need to uh, follow the six degrees of Audie Murphy thing. Yeah. I love that. Yeah, we will uh, we will change the game. It'll be trending on on X or Twitter or whatever it's called nowadays. But uh, yeah, I love that. Well, I'm glad we have your youthful energy and your passions uh, joining us on the team. I look forward to meeting you in person and hopefully I uh, get to hear about when you've talked to Captain Taylor in person. Yeah. Um, for anybody listening, if you want to learn more about the Medal of Honor Museum, just type in mohmuseum.org. You get the latest updates and find out how you can help its mission to inspire America. And that's it for us today. Join us next time on the Mission Inspire podcast. <laughs>